Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast, where I've got a guy here who's probably got the best personal brand name uh, ever, or the best one that I've heard anyway. We've got Alan the Crisis Guy. Alan, nice to uh, have you on the show today, mate. How are you? I'm great, and thanks for the uh, invitation. Lovely to be here, Pete. Now, it's a pleasure. So Alan and I have known each other for many years. Alan, why did you get the name The Crisis Guy? Where did all that come from? Yeah, I think that people told me it was not. I worked worked in crisis management, which we'll unpack in, the, in our chat. But people kept saying to me, "Oh, you're, you're the crisis guy," and it just sort of had a ring to it. And I thought sounds pretty cool. And we're actually working with a, a lawyer on a job, and she said, "Oh, you know, as lawyers do, you, you've got to register this. You've got to trademark yeah. it." So we went through the process and trademarked it, and here we are today. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not like there's anything wrong with Alan Briggs. You know, it's a nice, regular kind of name, but you know, the crisis guy's got a bit more of a ring to it. So, mate, let's unpack this story because it's always about, you know, looking to, to tell people's stories. So this uh, great business that you've got, the Crisis Shield, started many, many years ago when you were a young copper. Can you lead us down the path of what ended up, you know, in a moment of madness, I guess, did you decide to join the police force? Yeah, good, good question, Pete. Well, I think actually it all started back. I originally left uh, university qualified as a surveyor, so I was uh, out out in the field surveying and yeah, interesting job outside. You know, a lot of mathematics, so which I quite yep. enjoyed. So I really enjoyed that element. But you know, I was a young guy in my early twenties, and you know how things fall out. I kept seeing police sort of drive past from down the street and thought, "Now these guys look pretty sharp, and it looks pretty exciting." I was just looking for, you know, something a bit edgy and I thought, oh, I'll apply for the police force. So put my application in and uh, yeah, went through okay. And, and, and next thing I was a, a constable on the street. So this is the Victorian police. Whereabouts uh, did you grow up? Grew up in regional Victoria, but living in the in the city. So, you know, based in Metro Melbourne, still actually doing a lot of work in regional Victoria with the surveying, but yeah, just sort of had that. I suppose that youth, you know, you're, you're looking for something exciting and edgy. And while surveying was interesting, it just didn't quite have that that excitement that I was or I was looking for yeah. at the time. Well, it's one of those things, you know, like I, this, even though this uh, podcast is called Military Mindset for Business, it's military mindset isn't just about military people. It's a way of thinking. And there's so many right. parallels between, you know, the military and the other career paths, particular first responders and, and particularly police. So, I'd love to know what's life like as a junior copper doing beat work. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I you know I joined in the late nineties, uh, so I'm oh, sorry, sorry, the late eighties, losing time, late eighties. And uh, look, it was a very different police force back then. Social media didn't exist. I think the you know, and I'll unpack this a bit later, but I think the public were far more on side with police, and mm. was seen to be. I think community policing was pretty strong. And I certainly felt that when I was in the police force, we, it's always like we're working with the community. And yeah, as a, as a young police officer, look, it's exciting. You know, you work particularly a Friday, Saturday night on those balmy nights and you're just racing from one job to another. And it is, it's exciting. You know, you're going to, to brawls and domestics and car accidents and it is, it, it's quite an adrenaline rush. But I, after a few years, I thought, firstly, you go into a lot of negative things which you can't really if someone's been robbed or they've been in a car accident you can't turn back time and it's just pretty harrowing on on you personally and on your home life because you're working a lot of odd shifts your adrenaline's running which is great but you know you can only run on adrenaline for so long what's the training like i know you know to be a young infantry soldier or to become a to become a soldier 
you go away and do your, you know, your 10 or 12 week course as a basic soldier, learn your basic rifleman skills. And then you go do your on the job training for whatever particular core. It might take six months or a year to get skilled up. What's the training like to become a generalist copper? Well, back in back in my day, it was it was twenty weeks, which is a fair you know whack of time to go through the police academy, and it's pretty full on. Like just from memory, you're starting around about seven in the morning with a parade. You know, so they're checking you there, and you know athletic wear or your uniform, depending on what they scripted that you had to wear. And the whole day was basically doing law, doing physical drills, combat down the range when you matured a bit more, you know, progress through the course. So it was a fairly intense 20-week training. It, you know, it absorbed a lot of your time. But And looking back, I mean, you know, when I went through, it was 30-plus like years ago, it was a, you know, it was pretty brutal in a lot of ways. And, you know, like they wouldn't, I'd say, wouldn't get away with it. It just doesn't run like that anymore. It's, uh, it's uh, adjusted to the... Uh, the climate if you like but the funny thing was I, I look back and it did instill a lot of discipline and i think i had that inherently in me but that just really uh, reinforced it if anything i think the parallels must be more familiarity or complementary you know actions between hmm. you know, military training and police training dress and bearing how you act and present yourself you know running between different uniform changes for whatever class you're on do you do much hmm. you do drill and marching around Correct. Yeah, I don't know if they even do that so much now. So we had to do drill, and it is when you look back, it's a bit funny because it's the only time you ever use it, and you know, probably three quarters of the squad are pretty ordinary at drill. But uh, you manage through. But the whole other purpose is that teamwork. You know, you got to work yeah. together as a team, polishing your shoes, ironing your uniform. You know, they they get you on the parade ground, and they'd say, "All right, everyone, uh, get into your PT gear. You got five minutes." And if someone was late, then all right, go back and put your uniform on and do it again. Yeah. And you know, the amount of times we had did that uniform change until the whole team got it in time. Yeah. I remember drill in what I understood it was understanding responses to command is that you do these menial things over and over and over again. And so when the time actually matters and one of your superiors says, do this, you have a, you know, an automatic response to actually do what you're told. You know, apart from, you know, the discipline and the uh, and the bearing and how to hold yourself, it's that automatic response to command and being part of a team and working together. That was the real emphasis behind drill. Now, well, I've got one terrible drill. I was terrible at drill. Like just, I still today don't know whether I you know step off of your left foot or your right foot or you, know, you go this way or that way. And I remember doing a catafault party for Anzac Day once and I had the rifle just in the totally wrong spot, totally wrong angle. Had to hold it there for 20 minutes because if I moved it, oh, but terrible. It was one of the things I was just really, really, really not good at, but you know, it's all part of the fun. Yeah. Uh, look, it just, you know, at the time you think this is just ridiculous and, you know, why are we doing this? But on reflection, it just did drill that discipline, the teamwork, yeah. and, and making sure you got it right. Yeah. And some of the little humor about being on parade where, you know, you're standing there, you know, you're shifting, you, you know, you're not going to move for the next 15 minutes in this one spot. And, you're trying to whisper to your mates or blow off fly off your nose or something like that. It's uh, it's good fun. But mate, so tell me about you moved from being beat copper. I don't know if that's the right term. You know, a community copper yeah, into media. What was if I can ask being on the beat? Uh, what were some of your best times and worst times as a copper? Uh, look, uh, great best times of catching a crook. 
I have to say. Yep. If, if you catch a you know, catch a crook committing a crime, like and you, I'm not talking about someone that's five kilometres over the limit. I'm talking about someone who's broken into a house, stolen the car, might have been a, a pursuit. Uh, someone says, look, I saw or heard someone in my backyard breaking into the car or the house, and you catch the offender, taking back the station, nice. total, but like you get home, you're just buzzing. You know, I've got to yeah. say, it is quite an adrenaline high to do that. You feel like I've caught a criminal. I mean, then you, as you get older, you start unpacking and go, well, why is this person in the crime? And I'm I'm not here, yeah. you know, pro-crime, but, you know, sometimes you find it, you know, they're actually on drugs or, you know, they've got mental health issues. So it's not always, you know, but initially when you're younger, you think, great, I'm catching crooks. How good's that? You don't think too much behind, you know, why that person's in that position. So that was the, um, certainly the buzz. That was the highs. The lows were going particularly domestic violence. You know, and I know that's probably one of the, the toughest, I think, parts of policing. If you go to, well, from my experience, if you went to a, a you know, fatal car accident, it's it's horrific. But you, unless you know the person, you are reasonably being removed. You're there to do a job. You know, the ambulance will turn up, fire brigade. You, you all sort of working together to resolve. You know, clean it up and and investigate. But when you go to domestic violence, you know, you're dealing with people, emotion. There's yeah, you know, there's always two sides to the story. It's it's very hard and. The reality is you leave and you haven't resolved it. I mean, you may separate them, you may, you know, arrest the, you know, the the male or female, depending on what the situation is. But yeah, you, know, you go home and think, well, tomorrow that or next week that's gonna happen again. So that's yeah, it's just not yeah, it's just not very rewarding, to be honest. And it's one of the things I've always reflected on is for some reason, coppers have got this love-hate, you know, relationship with the community. Some people love them, some people hate them, no matter what. But when you're in trouble or when your mum's in trouble, who you're actually mm. going to call? Yeah. And regardless of the way that police are treated, they always turn up. They always just do an amazing job. So, hats off to you know your service as a police officer and all the existing you know, first responders out there today. It's really a service career. And there's something yeah. special about yeah. doing that for the community with very little thanks and rewards sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Look, it's a, some say it's a thankless task. I do feel there's, a, there's an element of, like, you know, like military, you, you know what you're signing up for. I always, when I went to accidents or scenes where members of the public turned up and I think, well, you haven't signed up for this, you haven't been trained for this. I always mm. felt like compassion for them, whereas in a sense we sort of took this role on. But, but even so, when you do it time and time again, it, it does impact you, you know, what you see and, and, you know, what you have to deal with. And I have to admit with my experience, you know, we, we get to wear our medals around in Anzac Day and because I've been to Afghanistan, people take a certain perception of what my experience was. And I say this nearly on every podcast, individual experiences vary. Like I wasn't mm. a combat officer. I didn't see a lot of trauma myself, uh, you know, with my own eyes. There was a lot around me, but it wasn't something I was directly exposed to. And for a military person, I believe we have a lot of support and transition to help us go through, you know, into our next phase of our career. But I'm not really sure. So, sorry, we also have something called the Department of Veteran Affairs, like a government agency that spends billions of dollars every year on, on supporting soldiers, which is a great thing. But what about first responders? What do you have in that space? Or how does the transition managed for your mob? Yeah, I look. I've got to be careful what I say in the sense that you know it's been a few years since I left. So, um, and think you know, look from what I'm talking to you know friends who've got us still in the police force and what I've observed, that's come a long way. So, like if you if you attend a you know a, a major incident or 
example of fatality, you know, the sort of mandatory um, counseling that you've got to go and do. Whereas it's interesting, I'm, I'm just finishing a book actually and on crisis management. And, you know, back in the day, the stress management was everyone goes down the pub and gets pissed. Mm. And to be quite honest, most of the people drive home. Yep. So that was the sort of, you know, the, the way you dealt with it and turn up to work the next day, hung over and everything's okay in theory. So that was the old days. In fairness, I think today it's a lot better. It's recognised. There's a lot of support there. And it's. I think the biggest things have taken the stigmatism out of it. So it's okay. So look, that really shook me up and that set me on some time out on need counselling. Whereas yeah. back in the day when I went through that, you would have looked upon, well, you're weak and you just wouldn't say it. You just hold yeah. inside. Yeah. Uh, you know, and because the ability for the, you know, for the coppers to keep backing up and backing up and, and to have an enduring career, you know, rather than get to a point where they, you now for whatever reason, need to transfer. Like we need good people in the force for as long as we can. And, you know, like, yeah. like the military, everyone has their time and it's time to transition. And on that note, what really triggered your time to transition? So first of all, from the beat police into the media unit, what was that like? And then out into the, the big wide world again. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Once again, just not really planned, but while I was uh, operational, I noted that, you know, I always had this you know, motto, one good police officer in the media unit is equivalent to 100 on the beat. So in the local police station district where I was working, I started writing little articles in the local paper and just things about, you know, locking your car, don't call the police if there's two kids yelling at each other and say that, you know, there's a gang kids stabbing each other. So I started doing that and I found it had a fairly good impact on crime rate and perception. People going, oh, this is good. So that's how it sort of kicked off. And then a, a position came up in the police PR unit and uh, I applied and I didn't realise. I thought, you know, strong competition, see how I go with this. And later on they said, oh, you were just, you know, <laughs> we knew the minute you applied, <laughs> you, you were going to have that role. So then I, I moved into the police PR unit. And that's where I actually, look, I loved it because it was more proactive. And I could also see working with the community, listening to their concerns, have a lot of impact. Now, it's not all about, you know, running down the street with a, a gun or a siren, sometimes just listening to people, changing things and getting the community to work with you. I found that very rewarding, but also very effective. Because when you transition out of the cops, we've still got a bit of a gap to fill here before you started your own business. Can you take us yeah. through these next couple of years before the crisis shield came to existence? Yeah, yeah. So oh, just quickly, just on the policing and, and part of the reason that I got to crisis shield is that I always remember in the police media, and again, it was exciting because I used to go out to all the big jobs, you know, the searches, plane crashes, fires, homicides. So, you know, you'd sort of, you'd turn up on site quite often doing a media interview. And the interesting thing I, I noted there is that some companies, when I turned up, they had well and truly planned and prepared. Now, very calm, even amongst the chaos. I thought, yeah, these guys are pretty organized. Some companies had no preparation whatsoever, and it was a mess. There's something to be said for planning for a bad day. Yeah. So that sort of planted the seed, if you like. I was quite settled, sergeant in the police force. thought, oh, this is pretty good. You know, This will do me for my career. And I got a tap on the shoulder, and, and government said, look, there's a, there's a role at the State Emergency Service to manage all their media, comms, PR. You know, we think you should apply. <laughs> so I applied, and uh, what a coincidence, uh, I was successful in getting the role. Yeah, that was that was interesting because I left the police, and I thought, going to SES, like, you know, that's how, how hard could it get, you know, after leaving police? And in the four years I was there, we had some of the biggest floods, Black Saturday. We had a volunteer drown during training. 
plane crashes, all sorts of pretty major events for the state and for that organization. So yeah, I learned a lot, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, but also learned a lot. So it was um, a terrific further, you know, upskilling, if you like, after police. Can you give me a few insights, again, two very service-driven organizations, one paid, one volunteer. What was mm. what was some of the key differences between that you saw from SAS and sorry SES and yeah. police state emergency service? Yeah, um, well, I wasn't a volunteer; I was on paid staff. It's interesting. I think the policing obviously had a you know a long tradition, had a really strong model, had a lot of funding, so and quite the discipline. So SES was sort of like if you like the poor cousin, if you like. So. It was interesting. I watched the volunteers who, it was interesting, a lot of people came there because they had the same passion to help. A lot of them looked, I think, for a bit of escape. They had, a, say, for example, an office job, didn't want to go to military or police, but wanted a bit of that adventure, which I suppose I was looking for in my early days of policing. Yeah, so that's they were you know, a great people to work with. They're very passionate. And it's interesting, even towards the end when I left, the amount of training and discipline said even in the volunteer organization that's just not SES, but uh red cross and fire brigade and that it's it's pretty high these days it's pretty high standards so yeah it was interesting to watch the um how they manage things uh, SES is still grappling with a bit of a you know a label if you like of the old dad's army sort of but look they certainly come a long way with the the training and and just the respect i think they you know they've lifted themselves up to a, a very solid emergency service. I'm always interested in where this seed of entrepreneurship or, you know, where this actual desire to create a business goes from. So when you've been a copper now, you've been in PR, there's some really great blending of core practical skills that you're going to take into this new business. Did you, at this stage, do you know you want to do this or where, where is this moment where it's like, Hey, there's something in here. I need to give this a crack. Look, I think it was more, I just wanted to time out. I thought, you know, I just felt like I'd in a sense. Hang on. So starting your own business is taking a time out, the easy part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's in it because I thought, look, I feel like, you know, I was saying to you, you know, the, the award ceremony, the annual driver revival. And I was like, yeah. you know, look, I, I feel like I've sort of ticked all the boxes. I've been here four years. I, I just think it's time. I don't I just don't feel I'm getting challenged here. And I thought, look, I'll I'll just have, you know, I had a bit of leave saved up, um, some money saved up. I thought, look, I'll take a bit of time out and then I'll think about what I want to do. So at that point in time, on the cards was actually going into a, a corporate job because I had a fairly good, strong skill set, or maybe starting out my own. And then I thought, look, I think I'll just give it a crack on my own. And it was one of the fascinating things I found was in because um, police and ECS, a lot of people I knew came up to me and shook my hand and they said, You're doing what I wish I could do, but I just I, I just can't do it. So I admire you mean for have, having a crack. Do you mean just having the courage to step to yep, step, step out, out of the steady job, good pay, yep. nice and yep. secure, and yep. just just literally those words, give it a crack. I'm just going to give this yep. thing a go. Yep. Give it a crack, yeah. And yeah, you know, when I look back, so you know, like the, the amount you learn when you open a business, yeah, like you know, like I worked fairly hard during the emergency services, and I think that was just a warm up for running a business. Like even even today, it's so brutal just trying to find clients, keep clients keep the pipeline running, running a business. I didn't have any business skills, knew the product inside out and was very passionate about that, but you know, that and running a business. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that because I know coming from the military experience, there's a few things that we are like really good at. 
operations, organization, leadership, teams, uh, you know, policy procedures, all of the detail. And you mentioned there, you can be really good at doing the job, but business itself has its own, it's like resetting and restarting again. And what, what I found in my experience was number one, how to sell and the worthiness to, to charge and price what I'm actually worth. And to say is actually to ask people for money to pay for it, you know, and so that again, I always use this term worthiness. I didn't feel like I had the value you know, just in myself to charge people for it. You know, then after that, so then there's, then marketing is a whole other thing, you know, in terms of how I actually share the message of what I do, but probably the uh, couple of the most definitive ones were cash flow and accounting. Now yeah. it's okay when you spend an army's money. It's another thing when you've got to cough it up yourself. Uh, yeah. And the other one is just the dark arts of digital marketing and how the, the digital ecosystem works. So it, it sounds like a similar kind of story. Does that resonate with you in terms of your challenges from the skills yeah. to the business acumen? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the, I think I'm pretty confident saying generally most small business owners when they open know their business very well. And that's probably the reason they're going, look, I know how to paint or you know, fix an engine yeah. or install an air conditioning unit or ride a crisis plane. So they, they're actually very highly skilled in that, but they're not usually very skilled in running a business. Mm-hmm. And I did, fortunately, did get a business coach early on. And I, one of the first things we had, he said, so tell me about your your finances. And I said, oh, it's about this and, and yeah, the income's about that. And expense. he says, there's no about. He said, you need to know right down to, the nearest, to every dollar. How many dollars did you spend on marketing? How much did you spend on fuel, office lease, stationery? Uh, how much is your income? What's your projected? And that's when I started to say, oh, yeah, look. And I'd, I'd worked budgets before, but like you said, it wasn't my money. And all I had to do was really just produce a, a forecast. And if it fell short, well, they just topped it up. It's interesting you say that because if I look at a customer, I always look at this as terms of customer journey, right? And I remember talking to you about pipelines many years ago, but right at one end of the customer journey, you've got people that don't know you exist. They're unaware of you. Then we move across and it's all marketing is about how we create awareness and lead generation and get to the point where they're interested in you. And then once they're interested in you, we have to move them through a process of discovery and a solution till they make a decision about you. And that's called sales. Then after Mm -hmm. that, we deliver operations. So what happens is people generally come to the business masterful at operations and they go, they need to develop backwards in that journey. So you're good at what you do, but then you think, hey, I actually need some sales now. Then you need to go back and work your way backwards in that journey about how to be good at sales. Then after you've managed to, you know, you create a few sales, you might have to put a team member or two on to deliver more work because all of a sudden you're a victim of your own success. Then you're like, hey, I've got to get more marketing and awareness going. So it's this sort of journey from being a master of what you're doing, then understanding sales and then understanding marketing. And then ultimately coming back to your brand and who you are and why you are is, you know, generally how it works. And one of the biggest things that, you know, if I had my time in business again, it would be to focus on understanding brand and marketing you know, before I really got into sales to, to really encapture why I'm doing things in business. So let's get into Crisis Shield now. Tell us what, how did this business start and tell us what you do? Well, uh, how it started and uh, my wife loves this story and because I tell her, I've, and I've still got it, I've had this crumpler and I bought a Mac 17 inch, which weighs about 50 kilos, probably not 50, but it's bloody heavy. 
And I remember running up or running, yeah, literally running up and down um, all the streets, the city streets of Melbourne, like a vacuum cleaner salesman, knocking on business doors, literally going to businesses who I knew or thought they needed a crisis plan saying, look, here I am, this is what I do, crisis management, media training. And literally that's how it all started. So, and even bumping into people in the street or I'd know sometimes if I went into the foyer of this building, who would possibly walk past, you know, they're going for coffee, say, oh, how are you going? What a coincidence to be running to each other. So that's how it actually started. So some of my early work was just purely that very old school cold calling. And this, when I started, yeah. it was 13 years ago. So, you know, social media, that wasn't where, or, and even LinkedIn wasn't where it is today. That's how it actually kicked off getting, and it's the old story, you, you, you pick one client, you leverage that one off the next, and and I'll, I'll probably share one of my, our biggest moments, the client knew it, we, early on, about two years in, we won Melbourne Airport as a client, and I distinctly remember they said, they really drove us down on price, but they said, we know how much it's valuable it is for you to have our brand on your books, and they were right, because from then, you know, the next one, so I said, well, we work for Melbourne Airport. They're like, oh, wow, you know. And then you pick up, you know, we picked up a major university and then, you know, it, then it leads and then people go, oh, well, if you're doing them, you must know what you're doing and we've got confidence and you're just leveraging from the last big name, basically. Can we talk about the world? You're talking 13 years ago we kicked this thing off, 2010. Yeah. What's mm. the world like in 2010 in terms of crises? Well, it's it's a good question because when I and it's just a huge shift. When I started the business, it was a lot of companies said, "Look, we sort of get what you do because we do crisis management. We work with the executive team. So when something goes wrong, and that team comes together because you know there's been a, a death or corruption or a fire or allegations of sex assault, whatever it is, um, and that team are pulled together. We've got a whole methodology how we train them, how you respond." Back then, a lot of companies would say to most, you know, executives say, look, I sort of get what, you know, it sort of makes sense, but you know what, we don't, if we start doing that, it sort of implies that we think that's going to happen here. And in fact, I had a few early clients said, don't ever tell anyone that um, you're working for us because we don't want to, people think we're worried about having a crisis. Move 13 years later, it's, it's just fascinating because now people are knocking on my door saying, look, we're really worried about a cyber attack or a pandemic or staff issues um, or you know production failure. Can you come in? And, and we're actually going to tell everyone we're doing it, by the way, because we see the value in it and it's seen as a good thing to do, which is good for the business, but it's a huge shift. Because when I sort of now reflect at 2010, I'm thinking now Afghanistan war is in you know full swing. Uh, there is potential terrorist activities, Lint Cafe, attacks in Sydney. But it's not necessarily everything that dramatic. It's, you know, the daily operations in a business where random things can happen. And, you know, the Swiss cheese effect of if all these unlikely events occur at the one critical moment, all of a sudden, bang, something's happened. And how does the company now react? So it's not just about PR, is it? And managing the media and the conversation around this. It's actually about preparation. Yeah. And and look, I think in fairness to businesses, a lot of them just never had the exposure. I mean, they had things go wrong. Social media wasn't as strong as it is today. You know, the, the, the focus wasn't so strong. So today, people, and people have been impacted. People have had cyber events. They've had union issues, had terrorism threats. They've had fires, active shooters. They've had suicides. They've had, you know, directors 
you know, releasing confidential information. So now people go, this shit actually happens. We've experienced it. We've had maybe a near miss or we've actually been hit. So it's now accepted this is just part of business. And that's probably a bit sad, but the reality is that's that's the world we're living in today. One of the things we've always talked about is the the similarities between what you do and what the military does is I find a lot of business owners plan for you know, green fields and blue skies where everything's going to be rosy and we tiptoe through the tulips and you know everything's mm-hmm. going to be nice. It's about taking a contingency approach. Can you talk us through how your particular planning methodology looks at what could go wrong so that if and when it does, you can respond and even potentially take advantages of those situations? Yeah. So the way well, I'll just quickly unpack, we have a five-step methodology. And I was just on a call half an hour ago to a prospect and I said in, in a sort of our utopia, we would actually firstly do an assessment and find out, you know, where you at, you know, with your people, your plans and your systems. Because yep. you're in good shape, then that's good. But we identify where your gaps are and where your strengths are. Next thing is you, you would actually write the plans. And it's interesting with plans. I've, one thing that's been, I suppose, fortunate is over the years, I've looked at a lot of plans, like hundreds. And I've, one thing I've learned is keep them tight, keep them very fit for purpose and user-friendly. When bad things are happening, I don't want a once upon a time manual that I've got to you know, yeah. work through. So that's the thing. So plans, you know, very succinct, but practical and work. Then train your team so they actually know that what their role is, so they're well prepared, and then um, exercise them. And same as military and police, you know, like drills, 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 run through it, find your gaps, strengths, weaknesses. And when the day comes, you go, I've done this before. And you'll follow yeah. that sort of that, that process. Rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Exactly. Yeah. When you're looking at assessing risks in business, how do you pull apart the differences between the risks a business imposes upon itself? I Melbourne Airport, a plane could crash. No, yeah. It hopefully won't happen. Versus external risks, uh, you know, like the pandemic or things that are outside of that organization's control. How do you analyze or look at the, both the internal and the external to develop this plan? It's interesting because I, I suppose now just being in the industry so long, I can you know, basic walk out to most businesses and I could probably list eight of their 10 high, highest risks. I mean, there's plenty of risks out there, but and, and we always do ask, you know, what's, what's on your risk register? So, for example, right now, every company is saying, oh, first thing on risk register is a cyber attack. That's it. But so most companies I walk through and go, well, if you're manufacturing, what's the risk there? If um, you're dealing with, you know, uh, livestock or your um, a university or your casino, so we got a fairly good uh, insights into the the risk just from our experience. But also, their risk team can give us good insights too. They go, you know, we've identified this. Um, often, uh, there's a good question: Who really is a very good at making assessment of your risk? Is your insurance company? Is mm. they? Well, and right now, and again, it's just I go to multiple events and functions. The insurers are saying, if you want us to cover you for cyber. It's A, we mightn't even cover you, or it's going to cost you a lot of money. Try and get house insurance up in Lismore right now. Yeah. You'd be struggling. So insurance companies are a pretty good barometer of what they see as the risks. So, you know, that's one of the ways we look at and go, where's your risk register from what's happened previously in your industry and your business? And what is the insurance, what are they telling you? Where do they see the risk and where are they hammering you with your fees? Because they see that as a heightened risk in your industry. If you're talking to a leadership team, you go into a business for the first time, 
what do you see being a company that's going to get it versus a company that's just going through a through the motions kind of activity? Is there anything you see there from a cultural or a leadership perspective yeah. in that team where you just sort of you feel like now these guys are going to, these guys and girls are going to get it? Yeah, but probably one of my best examples we we were called into a you know, major corporation and they were almost at ground zero. Plans were terrible, no training, no systems. So, but good for us. A lot of work to be done. And the thing I noted, they I won't say that, but they, they are just like our standout now. And the key reason is that the COO came to the training and she led. She said, I'm going to this training. Look forward to everyone being at that training. I, the companies, I think, that struggle where some of the leaders think, well, this is great, but it's not for me. I don't need to be there. It, I'm too important or it's not important enough for my time. And that then cascades through the business. So when I come in, I see the leadership team go, yep, we'll be there for the training. We're, you know, they're all busy people. But we know the importance of it and they attend and, and plus they get engaged. They're the winners. They're the ones who think, you know what, that these guys, and I see it, these are the ones, and some of them I've seen go through real serious events, live events, and they do really well. It knocks them around, but they because they they take it seriously, they put the effort in and and they listen to us too, which is good. Take the advice. Yeah. In a previous life, I was a brigade safety officer. So in the army, we're very good at hurting people, including ourselves whether that be, you know, hazardous chemical incidents or falling off trucks or, you know, whatever, the multitude of possible accidents that could happen, you know, when you're either training or doing things, uh, you know, for real. And again, one of the things is a barometer of success was if the commanding officers or the leadership team took responsibility and didn't delegate it, even though you can delegate some of the administrative activities to support your system, that ultimate buck stops with me mentality of for safety and risk management like this was the driver of whether this was actually going to be infused or inculcated into the culture of the organization yeah. or not. Mate, can you tell me about some examples where this work has come to fruition in real time? Yeah, multiple times. I've had just recent ones, we've had a client had a suicide. So there's a university, so a student took their own life. A lot of pressure on international students, quite often the family set them, you know, offshore, you know, funded it and with high expectations. And those students don't pass. And it's just, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, uni- most units now have identified that and put a lot of care and protection and, and monitoring around the students. But occasionally they, one slips through. So watching that, the impact, because, you know, there's a lot of, I feel like, guilt. A lot of students have come over to, you know, to Australia to, to study and, you know, didn't make the grade. And so... Um, ashamed and so you know, upset that they take their life. So that having those walk, walk through them, they're they're pretty tough to, for the client and actually for us too, because you know it's it's just horrific. It didn't yeah. need to happen, and because in a sense we didn't inter- no one intervened early enough. You know that person lost their life. Um, cyber, we're, we've seen quite a few of those, and you know, don't want to try to amp it up too much. But when you get a cyber attack, it really knocks your business about. I mean, you can't operate. And you can't log into your system. You know, there's a pretty key decisions about, and we've seen those for some of the big, well-celebrated cases of, you know, the Optus and Medibank. When do we notify people? How much information do we tell them? It's, it's very challenging and it just disrupts the whole business so much. So um, had another client recently, there was an international client. They were in the, uh, again, in the education sector and there was pretty severe cheating that was happening, um, which impacted their brand potential loss of their license and their commercial arrangements and 
again, just getting in there early and dealing with it. You know, we got a good resolution at the end. So yeah, they're just very, very. Had another one with a um, poultry farmer, and this is an interesting story. The part of the farm had actually been quarantined because there was a, an outbreak. They'd engaged their company to euthanize some of, I think it was something like a couple of thousand birds. And the animal liberation had gone into and put GoPros all around the farm. But what they'd actually done is gone from the contaminated sheds and walked into the clean sheds. Mm. And when a farm, just for the people that know, when a farm is actually quarantined like that, it's about 18 months that you can't actually operate it. So the animal, I'm not casting sides on either, but the impact of that is that it went from a couple of sheds to multiple sheds that were impacted. And the footage that they had was in clips and aired with the media. And the client I had it put them in a very bad light. Although they had some good policies procedure, some staff had done inappropriate things. So yeah, it's just interesting getting there. You know, they're really like a deer in the headlights. The media are chasing them. They're losing contracts. Uh, yeah, it's quite stressful for them. You mentioned something before about having, you know, a yesterday story model or, you know, outdated how-to guides on how to act in these situations. What would be your guidance on how regularly, you know, this needs to be refreshed, rehearsed, and basically reinfused with the next sequence of you know risks or crisis that could occur. No one thought of a pandemic. Well, I never thought of a pandemic in 2018. Uh, you know, back in 2010, everyone was probably thinking about a terrorist attack. But what do you see as potentially outside of cyber, you know, things coming up next and and how often should we be refreshing this kind of thinking? Yeah, look, uh, actually, just unpack it a little bit. Firstly, pandemic. We were running pandemic uh, exercises back. Like um, The last one I remember distinctly was 2015, mm-hmm. and outburst of a disease in the in, with a client. But I always thought it would just be contained to the client. Never in my wild streams I think it would be you know, a global event. But the same parallels there about masking, uh, isolation, sanitizing, so forth. So we ran those and a lot of clients said to us, look, this would never happen. You know, it was interesting that that was the perception back then. But we thought, look, well, it, it had happened in other countries, so you know, we should prepare. In going back to training, I think it's interesting, depending on the, the nature of the industry, we, we do get into this default, oh, we'll, we'll do training every year. And a lot of clients say it's a bit like the fire drill, your first aid training will every year. Now, if you work in, a, for example, in a library, fairly low risk, I'd say you might be able to get away with it every 18 months. You work in mining or a high-risk industry, you know, military police, they're constantly training mm. because, you know, the threat's real and it's more highly likely to happen. So it depends a bit on your industry. The key thing is to get your team well rehearsed. So when they come together, they know their role, they know to stay in their lane, they're calm, and no matter what it is, they, they work as a team. Again, a bit like military or police. I know, and that's why we have the hierarchy. And even when we're training clients, we say, once you go into a crisis response, you're in a paramilitary mode. The niceties of what you probably have in your meetings goes. Uh, we're a little bit more blunt and direct because we've got to focus and keep clear. So, yeah. And when, when you're doing those rehearsals or training with businesses, how do you find some of the people in the room? Do you see some of the personality change or the inter-office you know, dynamics mix when oh. you start putting some of these, uh, you know, more directive, more robust, get out yeah. kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah look, it's, it's interesting. Like, I mean, quite often clients by default think, oh, the CEO should lead. And now 
it's interesting. Our recommendation is actually they shouldn't, and a few reasons. One is quite often they're not available. The other one is that they could be the person that's actually been kidnapped or in the plane crash, or they might be the perpetrator and cause the crisis. So we always say they should actually stand aside and potentially do media, be you know advising the board, and just having that sort of helicopter view. So at um, yeah, the training goes back to getting people disciplined at, again, like military police. This is your role. So in military, you, know, you don't have someone just take off and say, oh, look, I've decided I'm going to do someone else's role uh, during combat because that's putting everyone at jeopardy and it's very dangerous. So the whole idea is you know, similar in crisis management. We've all got our roles, our positions. You're an expert in that area. You provide guidance and response in that, but don't start moving into other lanes. Yeah. Look, I just can't get out of my head the uh, the Simpsons episode about the peanut factory. And that famous line, you know, this is the moment we feared people, you know, when all of the drills about the elephants are going to raid the peanut factory and all of a sudden the elephants escape from the zoo down the road and they're all going directly to the peanut factory. But uh, anyway, they don't stop the elephants getting the peanuts, but this is the moment we feared people. It keeps going around in my head. Um, I know that, uh, you know, talking about discipline, here you are at, I think, probably quarter to one in the morning. Uh, London two, time, you know, you, you operate two. around the globe. You're currently in London. You've got, you know, jobs in New York all around the world. Tell us about what is the right kind of business that should be getting in touch with Crisis Shield? Like you work with some of the serious blue chip players, you know, around the world, universities, you know, very posh car companies. I don't know if I can na- name or, or want to name drop. Casinos. Yeah. Casinos. Yeah. But for a smaller Travel business agencies. person. Yeah. what's the kind of threshold of someone that should be reaching out to somebody like you for guidance? Yeah, look, um, it's interesting, actually, and that's probably the next iteration of excitement we've got at the moment because, you know, realistically, uh, unless you look as a guide, turning over probably about 20 million plus, most companies wouldn't invest in our services. And I, I understand that. It's just that it's a lot of money to invest. Uh, what we've actually developed is an online tool, which we're now trying to, the next thing is actually get some seeding funding for that. It's called Crisis Central. And yeah, my mantra is every business should have a crisis plan. And that might cost them two or $300 a year. And they've got you know, a very sort of template, a bit very basic plan. So if they've got a fire, flood, a death, corruption, sex assault, you know, there's a there's a guide there for them to work through. So they don't panic and some templated media releases. So, you know, basically take this and fill out the time and date and you can present that. So that's the, yeah. Look, every every business should, I mean, part of the process, it's interesting stepping back. When we go into a business, I start asking the questions, all right, well, you know, all right, what are you doing here? You know, manufacturing, all right. Um, you know, you've got a fire sprinkler system, that's great. You've got cutoff machines and that. Then I start looking at, well, you know, have you done HR training? And that, so you do actually, through the role, you ask some of those questions and think, well, you know, you've got an exposure here because you've got all these staff. So how do you manage that? So it's about looking at your risk and what you've done to mitigate. To me, that's one of the biggest steps straight up because that often will reduce the incident happening. And then the next phase, of course, well, if it does happen, we're ready. You know, we'll just mm. kick into gear and we'll respond very quickly and appropriately. Well, it's great to see the story, you know, from uh, country Victoria to being beat copper through the pathway, you know, media PR, lecturer at university it's like all of these things just were waiting and you know sort of building or stacking up until the time was right to metamorphize zip into the phone box and come out as the crisis guy (laughs) on on the other side how long are you overseas for when are you back in australia 
Um, I've already been away for six weeks. I'm here for another six. And again, just the, that's the excitement of the business. I knew when I left Melbourne, I thought, and well, my prediction was I thought there'll be a huge demand for me back in Melbourne. And the other thing is I'm coming over here. It's a fairly big investment for time and, and financially. It's like, you know, sort of going out. And they say the magic happens in the when you push yourself outside the comfort zone. So, yes, that was the whole premise. So I came over here thinking, you know, let's just give it a crack, see what happens. You know, do your networking, do your sales and, and just give it a crack. And going home, if we if we don't make any money, I'd still feel it's a success because you, you, you've had a crack at it. And that's sort of, I think that running a business, that's part of the, the attraction it's not just making money it's it's actually just trying how far you can push yourself and and go to the limit so that's the plan at this stage and yeah interesting in melbourne or back in australia businesses actually we've had so many inquiries my team are, are being pretty pushed at the moment but i've been assisting them from here but yeah it's it's great best thing i could have done mate well i love i've loved watching your journey over these years you've set up this you know, what is you know Australia's leading and one of the world's best you know crisis management companies? You know you, you're very very highly regarded. Some of the the best companies in the world you now lean forward and seek your advice. And, and I encourage everyone to follow Alan Briggs on LinkedIn. Jump onto his website crisisshield.com.au uh, and just follow, listen, and learn. But mate, um, let's catch up when you're back in uh, Australia for a cup of coffee and and have another yarn as always. And it's a pleasure for you uh, joining us today on the Military Mindset for Business podcast. I really appreciate the time. It was it was great to chat. And yeah, definitely catch up when I'm back in Sydney. Brilliant. Thanks very much, uh, Alan Briggs, The Crisis Guy, crisisshield.com.au. Thank you, everybody. This is Pete Liston. Out. <laughs>